Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by the Arizona Office of Tourism. This spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food. Arizona is the perfect home base for baseball fans. Plan your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash spring training. Yes, that's visitarizona.com slash spring training. And now here's our show. The team's date of birth. A day to be forever remembered. February the 21st, 1969, Fort Myers, Florida. As the Royals took the field for the first time. After 18 months of careful planning and tireless effort, the big day finally arrived. Opening day, Municipal Stadium on April the 8th. And what a launching it was. As immediately, the dream script began. The Royals win the opening day struggle against the eventual winners in the Western Division, the Minnesota Twins. They traveled through 12 innings. They won by a score of 4-3. to three. This game becoming the first of 21 victories, the Royals achieved their final turn at bat. Yes, the Royals were for real. And the man who made it all possible tells us why. Royal owner, Ewing Kaufman. Basically, the reason that I got in the baseball business that I thought the people of Kansas City in this great metropolitan area should have a Major League Baseball team. I also would say that I think that Kansas City and Missouri, Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, Oklahoma are tremendous sports fans, and I thought it would be successful. Welcome back to baseball, Kansas City. You've been missed. That new look is your team and Mid-America's team, the young and exciting Kansas City Royals. A team that proved itself to be the best of Major League Baseball's new entries in 1969. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings, everybody. How you doing? This is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seats Still Available. Yes, here we are once again, uh, downloaded into your earbuds, and we appreciate your uh, giving our little show a listen. Of course, it's Good Seats Still Available, and uh, it's the... Uh, the show that kind of tackles the uh, the un the, uh, the unimaginable that is what used to be in professional sports. Uh, thank you again for for being part of the uh, of the frivolity this week, and we're going into baseball uh, once again with uh, a little survey, shall we? Uh, around uh, expansion, sort of a topic that we've danced around and 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 nuanced just a little bit uh, in a number of our conversations, certainly across all sports, but but baseball uh, in particular, very very interesting. Uh, set of stories. And we're going to kind of survey the landscape uh, with our guest this week, Fran Zimnick, as we talk about uh, a history, if you will, of baseball's expansion, kind of really-ish starting around 1961 or so, and kind of, you know, sort of meandering through the uh, the decades uh, uh, afterwards. And uh, you heard sort of one of them, uh, 1969 was a very interesting uh, expansion year for Major League Baseball, where there was not only those Kansas City Royals uh, that uh, joined uh, the uh, American League that year, but they also joined 
uh, in the AL by another team known as the Seattle Pilots. Yes, uh, a previous episode and obviously some future ones to come. The one-year wonder that that was or were the Seattle Pilots, as well as two National League franchises that season, the Montreal Expos, uh, as well as the San Diego Padres. And, you know, for you, uh, uh, you longtime listeners, you'll know that uh, the late 60s was uh, quite the expansionary time for lots of things. It was the uh, the ABA launching and kind of pushing the NBA along. It was the great expansion, uh, the late 60s of the uh, the NHL, which had been tightly wound with six franchises for the longest of times until this sort of explosion started in the uh, in the 1967 and then beyond uh, seasons. Uh, and Major League Baseball was uh, was no uh, shrinking violet when it came to this, too. They they recognized that the greener pastures were to be had. Uh, and uh, clearly, as we'll talk about with Fran, a whole sort of uh, a series, if you will, of of expansion moves. Uh, 61, uh, 62, you had the Mets and the the, the uh, Houston Colt 45s and, and, you know, the sort of a response to the Continental League. We've talked about that with our old pal uh, Russ Buhite on a previous episode, that Continental League that sort of uh, was threatened but never sort of came to be. Uh, but in 1969, those four teams joined. And, you know, I just find it comical, that little clip that you heard there from, I don't know, it was like a, I guess it was a 1970 sort of recap of the initial 1969 season of the Kansas City Royals. You know, here's a really good example, right? So we like to focus on teams that uh, and leagues, you know, no longer with us. Uh, obviously, the Royals are still very much with us. As a matter of fact, playing very much in the same stadium, pretty much that they've been playing most of their uh, adult lives in Kansas City since uh, uh, the early 70s when they moved into Kauffman or now what well, well, was the you know, Royals slash Kauffman Stadium. And, um, and the, the, the notion that uh, they were the best of the four expansion teams. Uh, yeah, but kind of barely. Right. Let's be honest. I mean, the Kansas City Royals. Uh, in their first season, uh, 69 wins. Okay, but barely better than the uh, the Pilots that won 64 times, 64 98 uh, to be uh, exact. Yeah, it was a 395 winning percentage, and yeah, they uh, they had to move to Milwaukee the next season. Uh, but you know, let's be honest, they, the the Royals didn't uh, sort of burn up the uh, the American League, uh, and of course, the Expos and the uh, San Diego Padres uh, did quite poorly as well, both tying themselves if you will, with a futile record of 52 wins and 110 losses. So, yeah, franchises that expand usually in their first few seasons don't do so well. But it's a relative statement. However, uh, it is important to know. And, you know, again, Kansas City is a great case in point. Uh, you have to sort of understand some of the uh, teams that uh, that preceded uh, some of these expansion franchises. Kansas City, a really good example. Uh, you remember some of our previous conversations, the Kansas City A's, uh, owned by a whack job owner by the name of Charlie Finley, a shrewd, uh, crazy like a fox, perhaps, uh, obviously had moved the uh, the Kansas City A's uh, to Oakland uh, uh, two seasons prior, 19, uh, well, actually 1968. Uh, so 67 was the last year of the Kansas City A's. 68 was uh, baseball less for Kansas City. And uh, in come these new uh, expansion franchise Kansas City Royals in 1969. So, you know, th this is a game of musical chairs. It's a game of, uh, of expansionary times in pro sports generally, uh, in baseballs uh, specifically. Uh, and uh, the Royals just one of a number of teams and situations and uh, expansionary moves that we get into uh, this week uh, with our guest Fran Zimnick as we talk about expansion over the years 
uh, in what is now Major League Baseball and, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, an arc, I guess, of history and uh, some uh, some topics that we've discussed in the past uh, put in context, as well as a few teams that we kind of really haven't even touched yet uh, in our little journey together. Uh, and uh, we look forward to uh, sharing this little chat with you uh, in just a moment's time. Let us uh, get a sponsor uh, note out of the way first. And uh, we uh, tip our baseball cap this week uh, as we uh, uh, squint hard into the uh, into the calendar, looking desperately for the beginnings of spring training uh, with our friends at 503 Sports, the king of throwbacks. Yes, indeed. Dustin Alameda, the uh, chief proprietor of such out there in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Uh, 503-sports.com. You've heard us talk about them before. You'll hear us talk about them more often than not uh, in future episodes. And we love uh, 503 Sports and all of their throwback goodness. And uh, a great way to celebrate uh, this episode as uh, perhaps you'd like to reminisce about some of your favorite expansion teams, some of whom are still around, some of whom uh, have, uh, you know, stumbled into obscurity. Uh, and uh, at 503-sports.com, just click over to the uh, baseball section uh, and you're going to find some really cool stuff. You'll find uh, some lovingly crafted, uh, handcrafted and uh, uh, custom made uh, replica jerseys of some of the teams that uh, uh, we uh, we talk about in this week's episode. The uh, 69 Seattle Pilots jersey. Uh, that's pretty smart looking. How about a Colts 45 jersey? That's really cool, too. You don't see many of those around. And there's just all kinds of great stuff. There's a uh, Colt 45's uh a profile cap. You can get a couple of different kind of T-shirt looks for the pilots. Uh, there's some old Washington Senators shirts uh, and jerseys, both the uh, first and second versions of the Senators. Uh, really cool stuff. Uh, all there to be uh, found and enjoyed and purchased. Wink, wink, nod, nod at 503-sports.com. And by the way, you know, it's not just baseball. I mean, Dustin and friends have tons of great stuff uh, across a whole wide range of sports and leagues like football. I mean, the UFL which we talked about with our uh, pal Michael Hugh uh, a number of episodes ago, the USFL and XFL, the old version, of course, not the new one, uh, and, and other great stuff, WHA, WHL, uh, minor league. Uh, the ABA is represented. Lots of great stuff. Uh, and uh, you again, lots of uh, not only great shirts, but awesome custom-made jerseys that are uh, uh, crafted from, uh, uh, from, from photography and uh, with great accuracy uh, from the past. Again, 503-sports.com. And of course, we have a promo code for you. Please use the promo code SEATS and get and enjoy 10% off all of your purchases. Again, that's at 503-sports. 503, the number is 503- don't forget the dash sports. 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. We thank 503 Sports, we thank Dustin, and we thank you for giving them a try and giving us a listen further uh, with our conversation coming up with Fran uh, as we talk about expansion and baseball. And uh, we hope you please enjoy. Why don't you give our audience a sense of who you are and why you, know, uh, you, you kind of focused yourself on Sort of this uh, pretty, you know, surprising story of the relative inelegance of baseball's expansion over the last hundred years or so. Inelegance is a really good word for it. Um, I guess I should explain, Tim, the thing I like to write about in baseball, unfortunately, won't make me rich. I like to look at things that are now and look at the history of them. So, for instance, I wrote a book called Going, Going, Gone, which is a history of, the base, of baseball trades. I wrote a book called Fireman, The Evolution of the Closer in Baseball, which was 
literally the history of relief pitching and how the game has changed from where it used to be incumbent on the starter to go seven or eight innings. Now, all of a sudden, the game starts with the ninth inning and works its way forward. wrote another book called A History of Cheating in Sports. So it just seemed like the natural thing to write about was, was um, expansion because it's such a big part of our life, and there are so many teams in the league now that it just was something that interested me. So I did some research and had some great stories. Well, look, there's um, we've done a lot of sort of various explorations, plural, around not only baseball's sort of uh, fitful uh, history, and plenty more to come, by the way, uh, you know, the teams and, and, and expansions and relocations and all that kind of stuff, but also of other sports, too. And, and there are obviously some larger themes that sort of come along with that. And, and maybe we'll touch on some of those as we get along in our, our chat here. But economics certainly is one. Demography uh, is certainly another. Um, you know, there are uh, things around antitrust and, and you know, people's desire to uh, be part of a small club, shall we say, of, of owners uh, and uh, maybe being shut out of such. We'll, we'll probably touch on all of those, but maybe maybe you can kind of sort of, you know, walk our audience through some of the beginnings of, of this story in your book, Baseball's New Frontier, because um, I think a lot of it sort of circles around the uh, inarguable, uh, you know, uh, shot across the bow of these two beloved franchises in New York, one being in Brooklyn and one being in the Polo Grounds, uh, moving their uh, uh, their hearts, souls, and, and bodies and uh, franchises, whole lock, stock, and barrel, to the West Coast uh, in the late 1950s. But maybe there's a preface to that, too. Actually, there is. And um, when they moved their teams out of that city, they took the heart out of a lot of the fans. And I, I've t- spoken to people who still will not call the Los Angeles Dodgers, the LA Dodgers, they just have such an, a, a hatred for them for moving. But basically, if you want to talk about when the advent of, of, of baseball expansion started and why, um, it's funny, and again, I'll be hopping around a little bit, I guess, but the National Football League had teams on the West Coast in the 30s. Uh, baseball lag, lagged wide, way behind. But just to give you an idea, some of the things that led to expansion, first off, was jet travel, believe it or not. Um, an interesting little note, again, I have very little things to do with my life, so I like stuff like this. The first team to fly to another city was the Cincinnati Reds, who flew to Chicago on June 8, 1934. And that opened up the floodgates. And again, jet travel became much more prevalent in the 1950s. Uh, In 1955, the average distance between major league ballparks was 469 miles. By 2005, the average distance between major league ballparks was 1,155. So you can tell that that the the, the landscape has changed. In the 1950s, people had more discretionary income. Uh, World War II was over. Uh, the, the, the Korean conflict, if you want to call it that, was ending. Times were good. Everybody liked Ike. In 1950, the average income of a, of the, in the United States was $3,210 a year. By 1959, it had risen to 5010 a 64% increase. So, again, people are beginning to travel more. They have more discretionary income. Another major, major thing was... Uh, we became a car-centric society. In 1950, 60% of American families owned a car. 
1959, it was 77 percent. So we see the whole idea of the American dream changing. Now the American dream became having a house in the suburbs and a driving commute to work. Big cities were losing population because of that. And as a result of this migration to the suburbs, eight of the ten largest cities in the United States neither maintained or increased population in the 1950s. The only cities that increased population were New York and Los Angeles. So you can see a trend here. People are moving out of the cities into the suburbs. And, um, you know, I think that showed that there were going to be opportunities for owners who wanted to move their teams, like you mentioned earlier, out of the cities. However, while all this is going on, something else was happening. Uh, as I mentioned, the, um, the National Football League was already on the West Coast. There wasn't a Major League Baseball League. However, the people who moved to the West Coast or who lived there weren't without baseball. They had the Pacific Coast League, which had been in existence since around 1902 or 1903. Uh, their teams included some great names here. Pretty high quality, huh? too, the Pacific Coast League versus... Oh, gosh, that, yeah. Right? Oh, it, and this is really interesting because MLB shut them out. Uh, some of the teams in, in Pacific Coast League were the Hollywood Stars, the Los Angeles Angels, the Oakland Oaks, the Portland Beavers, the Sacramento Salons, the San Francisco Seals, the San Diego Padres, and the Seattle Reniers. Um a yearly occurrence, which I didn't know, saw the PCL commissioner, a gentleman with the poor name of Clarence Pance Rowland, go to every major league baseball commissioner about forming a third major league. The overtures were turned down because MLB preferred to do away with the Pacific Coast League because they viewed them as a geographic rival, and they realized that sometime in the future, major league baseball would be on the West Coast. Um, Interestingly enough, the Pacific Coast League actually outdrew some big league clubs until the advent of television. That's, I mean, so that's that's extremely interesting. But it's also it's also not surprising, I guess, when you sort of maybe look back on it that you know right. the, there's a you know it it, it becomes a, not only a rivalry but a, a pursuit of profits and territorial you know uh, preservation, so to speak. And if if anybody want, is going to sort of oversee, I guess, the expansion of baseball in the country. Right. The, the, the owners of major league teams are probably the ones that are fancying on doing that versus, you know, uh, absorbing, shall we say, something that already exists on the West Coast. Oh, you're, you're accusing them of being heavy handed. Oh, my gosh. You're kidding. <laughs> the, the trend continues, though. And, and here's another interesting thing that I found. And again, if you want to interrupt, if I'm going on too long or something, just no, this is great. Out. This is great. Great setup. One of the themes that I discovered in the book is that while things in baseball and in society in the 50s, may have appeared just fine, there was a strong undertow of trouble that continued to grow in society and in baseball. You know, in society, the 1950s were a great time to be alive. Obviously, you and I were too young for that, but anyway, you know, the post-war United States of America was a good place to be. But under the surface, there were a lot of issues such as racial discrimination that were just below the surface. And the same was true in baseball. Even though most teams were doing well, some franchises were suffering financially due to low attendance, particularly the Boston Braves, the St. Louis Browns, and the Philadelphia Athletics. No, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Those three in particular, yes. 
Yeah. And when the American League was founded in 1901, most teams were put into cities where there was already a National League franchise. So you're kind of swimming upstream. These three troubled teams moved to different cities in the 1950s, which caused a domino effect in many different areas. The Boston Braves left Boston to the more popular Red Sox in 1953 and became the Milwaukee Braves. A year later, because they couldn't compete with the Cardinals, the St. Louis Browns moved to Baltimore to become the Orioles. And in 1955, the Philadelphia A's left Philadelphia to the Phillies and became the Kansas City A's, which at the time was the westernmost city in Major League Baseball. So this showed that baseball was open to moving franchises in general and to the West in particular. Now, before we get into the Brooklyn Dodgers and whatnot, there's one really interesting thing I wanted to mention first, if that's okay. Yeah, and this is this is actually very important because and we've talked about the Braves uh, situation a little bit about the Kansas City A's situation, uh, a little bit about the Browns situation going to Baltimore. This, frankly, this is this is really almost overlooked kind of subtext to you know I think the bigger the bigger shot across the bow, which people sort of ascribe to to Brooklyn and to New York moving westward. Right. right. We can get right back to New York and, and whatnot, but I found something that I thought was fascinating in my research for this book. I think it's safe to say, had the Japanese not bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, there would still probably be a team called the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the New York Mets would never have existed. Now, you're thinking, what are you talking about? All right, you set the table. Let's uh, let's eat. Go ahead. There we go. <laughs> you want an appetizer? Go right in for the main, main meal. Nah, I'm a meat and potatoes guy. Go right ahead. All right, here's the meat. On December 8, 1941, Major League Baseball was going to have its winter meetings. At that time, a guy named Donald Barnes, who was the owner of the St. Louis Browns, was going to petition to move his team to Los Angeles. All the owners were in agreement with that. And another team would probably go to the West with them and go to, to San Francisco. So while the, So while the Browns would be in Los Angeles, either the Braves or the A's would have moved out West with the Browns for the 1943 season. However, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, everything was off the table. But think about this. Had this occurred, when the Dodgers were ready to go to L.A., they would have nowhere to go because there was already a team out there. San Francisco would have also had a team. And the the New York Giants never had any desire to go to the West Coast until Waller O'Malley reached out to them when he was going to Los Angeles, the the the, uh, the Dodgers are going or the Giants to Minneapolis, Minnesota. So that's a, and the fact that it would take what a decade plus later to actually sort of make these sort of grander moves happen after the war and, and that's out. Right, but no one really realizes that that the day before or the day after Pearl Harbor happened. Major League Baseball was going to have a franchise in Los Angeles and San Francisco. So like I said, when Walter O'Malley was going through his discussions with Los Angeles, there would have been no place for his team to go. So he probably would have remained in New York. Well, okay, so so let's let let's let's forward it a few years then into the actual fifties and you're and you're talking about the 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 lesser, shall we say, teams in in Boston or the the, the number two team, shall we say, in Boston. St. Louis uh, and Philadelphia all sort of uh, pining for uh, uh, 
you know, other other locales and, and moving, um, you know, that that sounds to me like a, that's really the starter's pistol towards the bigger opportunities. I, I, you know, but obviously most most people, most average sports fans look at sort of the Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants moves completely westward as kind of more shocking, I guess. I think maybe people kind of understood maybe some of these things were in motion prior with those franchises earlier. But I think most people kind of, especially New Yorkers, right? You you mentioned it before, sort of their hearts being torn up. But that's a, a real systemic shock to people and truly ushered in, I guess, a, if you will, a brave new world that, that many things were possible and arguably overdue in this country in terms of sports franchises. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. Everyone wants to demonize Walter O'Malley, who was the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, for taking the team to Los Angeles. But that was not his first plan. Uh, You know, the West Coast was becoming a very popular area that was hungry for Major League Baseball. And, you know, with these examples of franchise shifts, the, the game was moving to the West a little bit more. Um, but when it came to Brooklyn, New York, uh, Walter O'Malley wanted a new stadium to replace Ebbets Field, which was in basically general disarray. And more importantly, they only had 700 parking spots in what was a decaying area. O'Malley wanted to keep his team in Brooklyn, uh, but obtaining a site would take a site rather would take several hundred acres, which was very difficult to find in New York. Now, O'Malley was even willing to accept the cost of building the stadium, but he needed to have the land given to him either as a gift of the city by power of eminent domain or, or, or however they wanted to, to use the power to give, him, to give that to him. There was a gentleman named Robert Moses, who was the head of the city's public parks department, who blocked O'Malley's effort to acquire a site at the Atlantic Railroad Terminal. Moses wanted them to move to Flushing Meadows in Queens, which of course later became the site of City Field and Shea Stadium. We'll get to that as well. While this is going on, while O'Malley is trying to get a new stadium in New York, the Giants were looking to move. The the polo grounds had seen much better days, and their owner, Horace Stoneham, wanted to move the team. And basically, as I mentioned earlier, he had planned to move the team from Harlem to Minneapolis, where his team, the Minneapolis Millers, a AAA team, had a lot of success. So what, one of the saddest things for Dodger fans is they never were able to beat the Yankees in the World Series, but they finally did in 1955, and everything was great in Flatbush. But again, as I mentioned earlier, everything looks great, but beneath the surface, all hell was about to break loose. Um, Los Angeles by now was in private talks with O'Malley to move the team there. But again, he wanted to stay in New York, but unhappy with Moses and the frustration about Emmett's field, the Dodgers would actually play seven games in Roosevelt Field in Jersey City, New Jersey in 1956 and 1957. This is kind of a warning shot. He, 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 He shot over the bow of Major League Baseball. So eventually O'Malley just got tired of it decided he couldn't stay in Brooklyn, reached out to the uh, New York Giants owner, Stoneham, who agreed to go to San Francisco if he went to L.A. So both teams announced and moved to West Coast, to the West Coast for the 1958 season. So New York goes from having three major league teams, the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Giants, to only having the Yankees. And they were without... They were, they were really aggra- aggravated. So... 
here to me, as a guy who, who is from Philadelphia, would think of a typical New York response. New York had a mayor at the time named Robert Wagner. He wasn't the, the actor who played Alexander Mundy, but this was a guy who was the mayor of New York for quite a few years, and he decided to have that rule, it's best to do unto others if they have, as they have done unto you. And he, in that idea, he formed what was called the Mayor's Baseball Committee. And this was a, in this, there was a politically connected attorney by the name of William Shea, who headed the committee. And the whole purpose of this, this committee was to find an existing big league franchise that would abandon its fans and move to New York. So okay. the, the initial, and we, we've, we've, we've nibbled on this uh, on a number of different fronts, and then we're going to get to maybe uh, the big C in a second, right? Uh, yeah. the, 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 the initial concept was to attract a team to move versus an expansion franchise, right? That's a nice way of putting the initial idea was to steal a team from another city and bring it to New York. Got it. So, but the, but that it was not expansion, quote unquote, was not even no. sort of the first sort of thought process. No, that what that was not. Now, again, that idea, idea failed, but one of the teams who William Shea, does that name ring a bell? Shea, like Shea Stadium? Anyway, he was having a discussion with the Pittsburgh Pirates, where he be, he became acquainted with Branch Rickey, who was an executive with the Pirates and one of the great visionaries of the game. When they met, uh, all of a sudden, Major League Baseball expansion was just a few years away because they came up with a fantastic new idea called the Continental League. Now. When you look at any kind of expansion, you usually see two teams coming into a league, regardless of the sport. There's an expansion draft, and these teams really stink for quite a few years. Ricky always felt that if you're going to expand, you should do it in five or six cities and have all those teams play against each other so that there would be a better brand of play. That's what the National Hockey League did when it originally expanded, I think in 1967 or 1968, you had the six original teams, like the Rangers and the Canadians, the, the Maple Leafs, the, the Red Wings and whatnot. They added six new teams who were in what was called the Western Division. They played against each other, and then they played in the playoffs against the, the existing six teams and were horrible. But they had a great first couple of seasons because they were playing against teams who were their equals. That was Ricky's idea about baseball. And of course that didn't happen. Now, Branch Ricky is an interesting guy. He's most famous for what? Um, of course, breaking baseball's color barrier by um, adding Jackie Robinson to the Brooklyn Dodgers. But he was also an innovator who helped develop a lot of other ideas like the idea of spring training in Florida he also was the person who, who began the use of batting helmets by hitters. And he also invented the whole idea of a farm system where minor league teams feature players who are owned by the major league clubs. Before that, minor league teams were independent and basically made their money through attendance and by selling their players to major league organizations. But to me, the most important and dynamic contribution that Ricky made to the game was his involvement with the upstart Continental League, which he and Shea developed after being unsuccessful and stealing another team from New York. Now, 
basically what happened is he and Shea formulated the idea of the new league and attracted owners who had something that previous prospective new leagues never had, and that was money. There were examples of other leagues in the history of the game. There was something basically called the Ball Players League. Then there was the Federal League. Then there was the Mexican League. And all these ideas were going to be new Major League Baseball leagues. And they all failed because there just was not enough money there to support them. That was not the case with the Continental League. They had people like um, Bob Halsam, uh, Jack Kent Cook, and people like that who were well-known in later years for, uh, for owning teams. So basically, the, the combination of William Shea and Branch Rickey brought about an announcement that the Continental League, baseball's third major league, would debut on April 18, 1961. The teams in the league would be in Houston, Dallas, Denver, Toronto, Miami, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Buffalo, and New York. So New York gets a team back. Um, so this really um, caused a huge effect for Major League Baseball. As I mentioned earlier, while other attempts at a third Major League had failed, this one scared MLB to the point where they agreed to expand because it included Branch Rickey and it included all these prospective owners who had money to spend. So as their way of basically jettisoning the Continental League, Major League Baseball agreed to put two teams in the American League in 1961 and two teams in the National League in 1962. Uh, 1961, the Los Angeles Angels came into being. And instead of giving a new city a team, they gave Washington, D.C. another team, which had just lost a team, the, the Washington Senators, who moved to Minneapolis to become the Twins. So because of a lot of political upheaval and threats and whatnot, instead of giving, as I said, a new team, a new deserving city, a team, the new Washington Senators, Senators entered the American League in 1961, and in 62, the Houston Colt 45s and the Mets became National League teams. What's this? The Arizona Office of Tourism Spring Training. Oh, my God. Hey, this spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League Spring Training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food. Arizona, it's the perfect home base for baseball fans. Follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League Spring Training. Ten stadiums, 15 Major League Baseball teams, and 75-degree temperatures. Ah, awesome. And all 10 stadiums are in the greater Phoenix area, all within 50 miles of the city. Meet players, get autographs before the games, and just enjoy an old-fashioned ballpark experience in beautiful preseason weather down in Arizona. Check out amazing restaurants and bars nearby, including tons of craft breweries like Four Peaks, Angels Trumpet Ale House, and Goldwater Brewing Company. Enjoy live music from local and national artists and explore museums featuring everything from native heritage to modern art to musical instruments from around the world and more. Arizona is known for its incredible landscapes, too, as well as thrilling outdoor adventures. So hit the road and explore Arizona's urban centers or ghost towns or artsy communities or quirky outposts 
You can hike, you can bike, you can take Jeep tours, hot air balloon rides, skydiving, jet skiing, or just taking in a good old-fashioned sunset. No matter what you love to do, Arizona has you covered. Check out must-see destinations from your bucket list, like the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, Horseshoe Bend, and even the great Old West City of Tucson. Bringing the kids along for spring training? Hey, Arizona's a fantastic destination for families, too. Family-friendly resorts and hotels offer plenty of fun for kids of all ages, from water parks to horseback rides to games and activities. Arizona also has tons of stuff for kids to do and see, like wildlife parks and science museums, aquariums, and even dude ranches. So what are you waiting for? Plan now for your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash springtraining. That's visitarizona.com slash springtraining. Hey, and don't forget, send us a postcard. We've seen some of like th- this kind of uh, response uh, elsewhere, too. For example, you mentioned the NHL earlier, right? Well, you know, th- there was the... The rumblings of, uh, uh, and there was obviously the, the there's there was hockey teams in the uh, on the West Coast as well for some time that were sort of operating in a minor league yet autonomous kind of fashion, of relatively high quality, uh, almost very similar to the baseball situation. And you know, and lo and behold, when the World Hockey Association gets up and running in the late '60s or early '70s, uh, the rumblings at least, or you know, in the late '60s. You know that that hastened uh, NHL not just with the six expansion teams in '67, but but a, a a a nice drip, if you will, a solid, steady year by year drip of more franchises uh, in response. And I guess it, that's what it takes is sort of that sort of existential threat. Uh, but it also, I think, I guess the subtext of that too is there's always this sort of lurking antitrust exemption thing out there too, right? And baseball certainly didn't want to get give that away. Uh, in their lifetimes either. Exactly. And that's part of the reason the Washington Senators became the new expansion team. Because? Of the antitrust threat that, that was always there. I mean, um, it was the, the, when Oliver Wendell, Wendell Holmes makes, a, makes a, a ruling in the Supreme Court, it's going to be kind of hard to turn over. But Major League Baseball didn't want to go through all the, the rigmarole they'd have to go through in court. Um, so that's why they caved in um, as, as far as the Washington Senators in 1961 are concerned. So what, you know, give us a sense then of, of, of maybe how – and we, get, we obviously jump around on the show – but how, how are the markets kind of being determined, right? You're obviously mentioning men with the, with the dough, and, but I, in terms of you know, uh, to, to, to the extent that there was anything resembling a master plan, and I, you could make the argument that the Continental League was perhaps one of those sort of first, you know, maybe master plans or, or accelerated as such, right? So, so why those markets? Uh, aside from the very fact that there was an absence of top-tier professional baseball in those cities, why those cities in particular, do you think, and or, I don't know, how rational or well thought out would you say in the later years – was or the decision making around which markets uh, would ultimately get Major League Baseball franchises as the as the '60s and '70s, you know, sort of played out. Boy, that's a tough puzzle of a question. I'll tell you. Um, early on, 
in like 61 and 62. They, they had to take care of Washington. They had to take care of New York. And, and Los Angeles was natural because of the Dodgers being out there. And Houston was an up-and-growing city, uh, which is why they got to Colt 45. Um, the, the next expansion wasn't until 1969. Um, and that, in, you know, that included Kansas City, Seattle, San Diego, and Montreal. Um, interesting story about Houston. Um, actually, actually, two stories about the Colt 45s. In their first couple of years, they played in an old, dilapidated stadium called Colt 45 Stadium. And um, one of the great ball players of all time was a Hall of Famer named Richie Ashburn. And Richie played most of his career with the Phillies, and he also played with the, with the Cubs. And he uh, played his uh, last year, uh, the first year as a New York Met. But, but Colt 45 Stadium was around before the Astrodome. And in Houston, you absolutely have to have a dome stadium because it's hot, it's humid, and the bugs there are amazing. And Rich Ashburn once said that Houston is the only town where women wear insect repellent instead of perfume, which I thought it was just a great statement about the need for the Astrodome. No, and, um, and that, that team that team was actually, it's fascinating, but also interesting to me, too, that, that there was a team that, I, well, well, let's think, think about it. It seems kind of uh, quaint and almost uh, naive by today's modern uh, uh, comparison, but the Mets having to play in the old polo grounds, which had frankly not fallen into dilapidation and, and had been basically tenantless uh, for those couple of years, or maybe the, the New York Titans were there as well for a short period of time while their new stadium was being built. The 45s in, you know, uh, uh, you're being charitable, I think, in describing what, what that was like. Uh, and, and I don't even know if the Astrodome was even in the mix or was promised as part of a, a rationale of getting Houston a franchise. You look at what the debacle in Seattle, uh, where they didn't even really fully have a plan for a stadium uh, or it was mired, pilots, yeah. Yeah, mired in, in, in politics and whatnot. So I, I guess my, my sort of question is, I, today it's obviously, you know, you need that commitment to be there before, frankly, you're going to even get a franchise, Major League Soccer being a really good example of that, right? No, no stadium, no team. Um, right. But it seems really interesting how Major League Baseball would uh, allow for expansion without maybe some of the, the T's crossed and the I's dotted, when it came to suitable stadiums in some of these cases? Well, keep in mind, this is early in the process, too. The Astrodome was in the mix when, when, um, when they moved to Houston, or when they, when they gave the, the uh, franchise to Houston. An interesting story about the, the Astrodome, if you, if you don't mind me giving you another one. Uh, the, the Colt 45s had a relief pitcher named Jim Umbright who was a really good relief pitcher. He, had, you know, he would have an ERA of around 2.4, 2.5, threw hard, had good stuff, was very effective, and what was not a very good team. Um, unfortunately, he developed cancer. It was a really serious form of cancer, and he had to have a lot of surgeries, and there were examples of him pitching in games um, for the Colt 45s, and he had had surgery on his leg, and they wrapped the leg, but the blood was seeping through. And it's just a, a horrible story. But his one goal was to live long enough to see the opening of the Astrodome. And unfortunately, he didn't. He passed away during the off-season before it opened. But he actually has the world's biggest 
tombstone because his family took his ashes and spread his ashes into the Astrodome as it was being built. So that's kind of a neat story about a guy who, who just loved the game and was a very good player and left a little bit too early. Well, give us a sense then, sort of. Let's let's look at it sort of from a longitudinal sort of perspective. How do, how would you describe the process by which Major League Baseball looks at expansion, and maybe sort of in the, on the on the on it, through the side door of relocation around this time? Because it's pretty clear that the late fifties, you know, and the and the salvo of all those teams, you know, you had three teams in the mid fifties, and then obviously the the exclamation point of the Dodgers and the Giants moving westward, that, that really, you know, that's that sense a signal that 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 westward ho is 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 the is the mindset and the mantra. But I, I guess I'm really curious as to sort of the the rhyme or reason to the extent that there was such. Uh, is it driven by economics? Is it driven by television? You mentioned air travel. I, I'm curious as to sort of the how and the where. Uh, that Major League Baseball over time, or, or was it maybe sort of incremental and not sort of super long-term in, in thinking? I think in many ways it was incremental, but I think there was always a basic logic there. And uh, you know, I, I, the original expansion, I think, was a, um, um, a reaction to the Continental League. But after that, you know, they're looking for areas that had population growth, obviously, so they could support a team, attractive places to go. You're looking for either a stadium that's already there or a stadium that's in the plans. And of course, you need ownership that is committed to the idea. Uh, there's always an entrance fee to even join Major League Baseball. So you have to make sure that you have someone who can afford and who can afford to do it and is in it for the long term. But yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't just go to to Des Moines, Iowa. You're going to go to a place that has population growth that could support a team. So why, how would you characterize the '60s then? Because obviously you've got four teams kind of expanding in, in a period of two years. That's that's sort of the natural knee jerk reaction to, con to the Continental League that you're you're talking about. And um, mm -hmm. but but it wasn't until the ending part of the decade, which you know tumultuous at that where Major League Baseball, you know, sort of ramped up even uh, the beginnings of, of another sort of round and, and picking, frankly, you know, some very interesting cities, but four of them all in one shot in 1969. Why Montreal, for example? And, and why, say, Seattle with its shaky and or not fully fleshed out stadium plan, would you say? You mean six stadium? Yeah. S-I-C-K-S. Um <laughs> They actually didn't have enough seats for the opening game at Six Stadium for the Seattle Pilots, and they didn't have enough bathrooms either. So it was it was an interesting situation. I, I think to answer your question, uh, you know, you know, Montreal was. I mean, now now Toronto is looked at as basically the, the the capital city of Canada, if you will. I mean, I know that Ottawa is, but I mean, when you're looking about business and finance, but back in those days, Montreal was the city. And I, I think the, the, the idea, the luster of international play was very important. And, and you know what? The Montreal Expos did quite well. It's just when ownership ran into some financial issues and had to sell off their best players that the, the franchise got in trouble. Um, you know, Seattle made sense. Um, you have the Kansas City Royals, Seattle, and then in the National League, you have San Diego as well. So, again, you're moving towards to Canada and also to the West more so. So uh, okay, so but uh, each of these situations are 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 
pretty interesting and unique, right? The 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 pilots and Seattle, right, where you know minor league baseball had done quite well, and and the Padres too, for that matter. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it, you know, Seattle being you know the biggest sort of Western metropolitan area outside of the two or three franchises in in California, some natural geography there, but. You know, Montreal seems like an outlier, I guess, when you think about it. Um, and Kansas City, right, was itself a response to a team that had itself been domiciled elsewhere, Philadelphia, and a guy named Charlie Finley moving to Oakland, right? Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't, yeah. it was, it was an immediate replacement for the departure of the A's. But it's also curious, too, that the A's were never, you know, truly. Uh, warmly embraced by Kansas City for a number of different reasons, right? Some of them self-inflicted and then the the weird relationship with the New York Yankees and and Charlie Finley uh, supposedly being a white knight and then, you know, literally getting on his horse and taking the team away. Yeah, they were almost like the Yankees farm system. It was crazy. Right, it was crazy. But but I guess my point is that these four franchises don't, I I don't know, and I'm sure this is in hindsight, but against the tableau of the of the late 1960s with, with all the things other distractions going on in this country I, I'm not sure that I would have necessarily picked those four places and situations as the next best places to put franchises right and and Seattle. yeah but we have yeah but we both have have the the, the um the, the power to just to look back and you know we we weren't living it we you know they're 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 going by the the seat of their pants trying to make the right kind of decisions, and at those at those times, they felt that the ownership and the cities they were moving to were the right places to go and the right situations for Major League Baseball. You know, it's easy to look back on it now and say, "Well, this, that, or the other thing," but again, they didn't have that that opportunity to, to look back in the you know and, and what's the, I'm not sure the phrase I'm looking for. Um, they just didn't have the opportunity to look back. On something that was going to happen. No, certainly. I, I, I guess I'm just, I'm just struggling for what, what do you think the, the, the dynamics of some of those decisions were? How much do you think it was, say, uh, the advent of pro football, right? You had a rival league in the AFL, you know, pushing the NFL westward as well. Uh, well, the NFL was way ahead of, of baseball, as I mentioned. They had the Los Angeles Rams and the San Francisco. I don't think they were the 49ers. I think they were the Seals or something. You're going way back. And again, you're right. With the expansion of hockey, uh, you had the Los Angeles Kings. You had the Oakland Seals. I think they were too. Or they might have had a different team. But yeah, other leagues were, were going to the West Coast quicker and more often than baseball was. So I think some of it might be a knee-jerk reaction. But again, you're looking at teams. You're looking at populations. You're looking at growing populations. And then you're also looking at the economics of having an owner who's willing to come in there and make the, the commitment that you need. How about how about television and media and sort of these uh, the, the sort of the uh, I don't know the nationalization I guess of, of te- you know television and and, the, and we'll get into the seventies and eighties the cable but I got to think television and and other revenue streams besides gate receipts started to creep into the logic too as well as markets just you know from a, a demographic perspective as being you know attractive and sponsor filled environments that were you know largely minor league. And maybe ripe for for the picking. Yeah, that's a good point. And when it comes, what's interesting with you know, radio broadcasts and television of games, there were owners who were totally against that because they thought, my God, if we're going to let you broadcast games so that people can listen to them or watch them for free, why would they come out to the ballpark? 
but they didn't realize that America was going to fall in love with baseball, and that once you hear it on TV or see it on or hear it on the radio or see it on TV, you want to go out to a game and experience it live. So by by giving people a free taste of it, I think it really opened up the floodgates. And you know, obviously, radio and then later TV really um, uh, had a big impact on the popularity of the game. And that, of course, led to popularities in cities that didn't have baseball. I think it's interesting, too, because uh, the way you lay out these uh, these franchise expansions uh, in your book, there's almost sort of like a a, a divining rod or a line uh, between what we've kind of described thus far, sort of that first expansion and the second wave, you know, sort of getting through the 60s. And mm-hmm. then as we get into the 70s, there's a line before that, though, which is around how players... Uh, start to uh, uh, increasingly exhibit or exert more uh, leverage and or say in the matters of the baseball business. And maybe maybe a few words on that before we kind of roll into the 70s, because obviously the 70s generally was a tumultuous. And now with the announcement of Marvin Miller finally getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, now f- fully recognized as sort of a, an important uh, dynamic change for you know, for baseball, which was, you know, largely a, I don't call it robber barons, but, you know, ownership uh, driven and led uh, and not sort of a, an equal footing with the players who certainly seem to get a lot more, uh, uh, shall we say, foot in the door and leverage uh, as the mm-hmm. 70s came about. Yeah, I, I guarantee you there's not a single baseball owner who is who is happy to see Marvin Miller get elected to the Hall of Fame. But, I mean, he certainly deserved to because of what he did for the game. Uh, in, you know, what you're talking about, I guess, is the reserve clause, which had been in existence since 1890-something, I believe. And basically the idea of the reserve clause was if a major league team signed a player to a contract, if the player did not sign with the team again, whether they got a raise or not, they got their, their salary was, was decreased or whatever, they belonged they were the property of that major league team into to basically forever. You know, once if you signed with the Chicago Cubs, you were always a Chicago Cub unless they released you, sold you to another team, or traded you. And basically, the idea of the reserve clause was was brought before the Supreme Court, and Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes basically said that. The, 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 the baseball gave exhibitions of baseball, which are purely state affairs. Owners produce baseball games as a source of profit and cannot change the character of the games. So it's still a sport and not a trade. And that way, there was no that that was the basic history of the antitrust legislation. Baseball is protected by it. And then a few years later, uh, with Kurt Flood, who you know, if Marvin Miller gets into the Hall of Fame for what he did, I think Kurt Flood maybe should at some point, too, because uh, he was an outstanding center fielder with the St. Louis Cardinals. And then I guess I guess in the late 60s, or early 70s, he was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies in a blockbuster trade, and he said he didn't want to go. And he basically gave up his career to stand up to this, and he wound up going in front of the Supreme Court and whatnot. And basically... I believe it was in 1975 on Christmas Eve or December 23rd or something. Uh, it was announced by an arbiter. I think his name was George Vesey or Vice, uh, that baseball, 
that baseball's reserve clause was no more and that there would be free agency in baseball. And um, at that point, the union and the owners sat down. They came up with what was a, um, uh, a, a plan to implement free agency that made more sense than just having every single baseball player being a free agent. Uh, so, you know, you basically had, um, you, you know, you had Kurt Flood doing what he did. And then there were two pitchers, Andy Messersmith and Dave, Dave McNally. Um, McNally with the um, Orioles and Messersmith with the, with the Dodgers played a season without signing their contract. And they said that this made them a free agent. Baseball said that they didn't. And this is where the arbitrator sided with the players. And that's when all hell broke loose in baseball. And players started to move a lot more from team to team and make a lot more money. Yeah, certainly. And I think that also, in many respects, helped sort of fuel the desire to grow the pie and, and, and create bigger economics for the sport, too, which I, which I think would be a few logs of, of interest to further bring baseball to to other other lands, including, by the way, now, you put this in relief around the 70s, too. This is obviously when... You know, a lot of the, uh, the cable television infrastructure really started to get sort of uh, laid out there and, and built, and obviously in the '80s, really becoming a major thing. But but the '70s really, I mean, I I remember vividly as a kid, you know, the the two franchises in um, in '77 with Toronto and, and Seattle, which was also this, around the same time where the NFL famously added t- Tampa Bay and Seattle. So uh, you know, uh, th- to me, that's a really interesting because really that's kind of the first time that 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 baseball expanded really after uh, some of these uh, uh, player uh, uh, embellishments shall we say came and in, came into being I I'm just curious as to how in 77 why Seattle and why Toronto I mean Seattle to me in itself is interesting because there are a couple of things there one is you've got both NFL and Major League Baseball so that's like high times for for Seattle the the you know, with the Supersonics at the time, I mean that that's truly becoming a major league city in seemingly overnight. But it's also to rectify maybe the the, the false start that the that the pilots had underwent in '69. The fact that the stadium had finally been built, uh, albeit years yeah. later. Yeah, you had this. You had the Kingdom in Seattle, which was a a big big reason to do that. And again, there was money behind it. Never, never, ever forget how important that the money is. As, as, if you have what you look at as a really strong ownership group, which they really was a little questionable with the, with the pilots, um, that, that's the one thing I think that, that has improved as far as baseball is talking about when they, when they consider expanding to a, specific, um, to a specific area is that they really, really do a lot of due diligence with the ownership group. And, and again, like you mentioned with the pilots, you have – the Seahawks and and the and and the, um, the the importance of the kingdom, which would gave them a place to live, which was a thousand times better than six stadium. Well, let, let, let's maybe put sort of round third base on this because I'm you know there's obviously lots of different little idiosyncrasies to each of each of the teams. You know, we haven't gotten really into the '90s and, and some of the franchises there, but I you know we look at maybe you can fast forward, and this is sort of how you kind of set up the the table for. For your book, even even a few years ago, and perhaps it's it's even worthy of a new epilogue, right? Because I it's we see now uh, a number of things that are existentially challenging 
uh, pro sports, but baseball in particular, right? There's the the length of the games, right? There's the uh, the bigger issue outside of just baseball, that of stadiums and politics and the finances of such, right? Um, and you've got a a wellspring of other leagues now that are rapidly expanding. Major League Soccer being a, a an amazing example, right? Where you know a team just got awarded as we record this to Charlotte for what was rumored to be three hundred and twenty five million dollars, right? Where you know, and a new a new NHL franchise in Seattle, which is just just south of six hundred million dollars. I mean, you wonder if there's peak, you know, in all of this. But we also see now. Some and maybe baseball exhibiting a bit more of this than some of the other sports. Some real questioning of the uh, uh, the long lasting uh, abilities of certain teams in baseball, whether it's the sport itself, whether it's demography, whether it's whatever. Right. So, Tampa Bay, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. St. Petersburg is. You know, it, we've all lamented. We've seen it on on television that, that stadium, and and it's just it is a it's a sorry state of affairs there, frankly. And and the idea of entertaining either a new stadium, if there's a political if there's political will to make it happen and, and 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 taxpayer interest, but also now, ironically and interestingly, possibly sharing that team with wait for it Montreal all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what do you what do you think that signals? Is that is that maybe we're too many franchises uh, out there now with baseball, and maybe there there needs to be a little trimming or. Are we looking maybe more at a new model where there is some of the sharing or uh, does contraction happen in our lifetimes or, you know, uh, relocation and or new franchises? I, I don't know if baseball is ready to expand further. Right. Yeah, I, 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 I'm when, when we talk about franchises, Tampa Bay and Florida, I just don't know if Major League Baseball belongs in Florida. Um, and I know a lot of people will disagree with me on that. But to me, that's where spring training is. Um, you need a great facility. Um, I, I just don't know. The Florida Marlins were really successful when they were winning. And then when he- Wayne Heisinga sold off his team, they became a last-place team again. And it's a shame because the fans supported them. As far as Tampa Bay and the Montreal idea, I personally love that idea. Because I think Montreal is a great baseball town. And it got a horrible reputation when the team was playing the games in Puerto Rico and before they moved to Washington. It's just because the ownership, which was eventually turned over to Major League Baseball, basically sold off their players. They put a horrible product on the field. And it's just really unfortunate. The Expos, when they were playing well at a horrible stadium, Olympic Stadium, supported them. That place had a they, they had fine attendance. The people supported the team. The team was fun. Uh, I, I can still hear the little theme song that they used to play when the Expos would come onto the field. Uh, I think Montreal and baseball are a natural. And if you look at the at the weather situations in Montreal and Tampa Bay, I think that might be pretty interesting to split the season because, quite frankly, I don't know if Tampa Bay is capable of supporting a team all year long. Where if they only had, like, say, 40, 40, was it 40, half the season, uh, 40 games instead of 80 or something like that, uh, maybe they would support the team better. And it would give another city, Montreal, another chance at baseball, which I think it richly deserves. 
Are there other markets, though, besides, say, going back to Montreal? And I, I was literally just in Montreal last summer and, and, and agree that you, you, you will find a bevy of, of Expos uh, uh, memorabilia and uh, jerseys and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's almost like the team still is there and exists, right? And, and either in Montreal, you've either embraced Toronto as your quote-unquote baseball team or never will you. Right. And that's actually you're kind of chafing at maybe some of the of the rationale as to why Montreal might be indeed, again, uh, a good baseball town. Are there any other Montreal and to my mind, in my mind, Montreal and Toronto, while they're much closer geographically, are much like New York and Los Angeles. They're they're enemies. There is just a natural uh, just a natural. For sure. Yeah. So I think that while and you've seen how well the, the Blue Jays have done. Yeah, they've they've drawn very well. They won titles and whatnot. Uh, even though they cheated terribly when they beat the Phillies in, in 1993, I'm not going to worry too much about that. But you know, I mean, they the, the franchise has been run incredibly well. And I think again, if you get the right kind of ownership and the right kind of situation, I think I think Montreal would be a great idea. Where else? Uh, Charlotte's always been thrown out there on a on a fairly regular basis. Uh, Las Vegas has been thrown out there. Uh, on a somewhat regular basis. What do you think of other, I mean, expansion or relocation or otherwise, or or to your point maybe earlier, or my, my, and my intimation, uh, maybe maybe their expansion and, and relocation shouldn't be, and maybe it's more of a, do you winnow down things? I mean, you know, Arizona's been an interesting uh, situation over the years. Uh, clearly Miami uh, and that stadium situation has been, uh, you know, a black eye and on many in many respects for various reasons. Uh, oh, it's been horrible. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you think? You know what I think? I think a little. If a team or two were constricted, I could live with that. But what about an international team? How about a, a team either in uh, you could say maybe Mexico City or something, or maybe why not even Europe or possibly Japan? That well, would be interesting. Well, no, I think not only be interesting. I think it, it's it's frankly logical and i think you see major league baseball you know trying to you know uh, uh, emulate the soccer's world cup a bit with uh, the world championships and, and trying to sort of make that into a thing and you know we've had a couple of other conversations around you know uh, some some uh, uh, flirtations with that in 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 many years past i mean cuba before it went uh, under the uh, the communist spell of, of fidel castro right was havana was very much uh, considered to be possibly a major league expansion environment back in the 50s. Oh, it's a baseball hut that it still is. Plus that, right? Um, but yeah, yeah. And, and you look at sort of the NFL and, and its uh, its global uh, intentions and certainly the NBA, which is arguably probably leading the way as it, in terms of American uh, expansion to sports and stuff. Obviously, the NHL hockey is uh, inherently more international, uh, uh, you know, in its very nature, Canada and, and Russia and elsewhere. Um, but baseball, right, is still somewhat quintessentially American, right? It's, the, it's America's pastime. But yeah, the yeah. exportation it makes actually maybe more logical sense than maybe trying to. Right? But then let me ask you also this too: juxtapose. You could that. have a true World Series. You could say maybe you could have a Japanese championship team, um, some other league, and meet with the American, the you know, the, the, the the major league baseball champion, and have a true World Series. Well, the only reason I sort of cast sort of a, a negative pall on some of this is because, and you, you've been reading about this last number of months, right, is the worst kept secret about Major League Baseball trying to uh, either buy out and or contract or, or dramatically change its relationship with Minor League Baseball. 
And yeah. that to me sends a signal, I think, that, you know, the uh, the charitable, I guess, uh, uh, relationship or lack thereof officially uh, is maybe no longer financially tenable. And if that's going to happen on the minor league level, you know, what does that say? Does that strengthen maybe that winnowing, if you will, uh, the major league uh, 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 mom and dad? Or or is that maybe indicative of of perhaps what comes to major league baseball if things don't change either? You know, you're seeing you know, you're seeing some troubling things happening to major league baseball when when there isn't when there doesn't seem to be a commitment by an organization to put a winning team out there and you're going to, you're seeing attendance suffer. You're seeing a lot of criticism and whatnot. And I think it keeps everyone on their toes. So yeah, I think that there's definitely something, there's a, there's a, there's something to your point. You know, I, I think that major league baseball needs to be committed to putting a better product on the field all the time. All right. Last thing I've got for you here. And it's, it's very interesting, obviously, and that, uh, this, this topic that we sort of focus on, uh, you know, it's, I, I jokingly say that they're, they're always making more, right? Cause there's always the opportunity for teams to, to leave and dissipate. And, and we haven't, we haven't experienced an economic downturn of any great significance that we're probably cyclically overdue for politics aside. Um, you know, and that'll be interesting to see sort of, you know, for the last decade or so, a lot of major league sports have, uh, shall we say, taking advantage of low interest rates and and expansion and television, but you know, television itself is being changed dramatically. And and again, you you wonder about the cable exactly. Well, yeah, and, and streaming and people unbundling and, and uh, mm-hmm. cutting their cords and all that kind of stuff. I it just to me feels and, and baseball is probably you know uh, prime among them that that we may be approaching some level of interim peakness when it comes to how many teams and how much money and and how much support for all these things can sort of go on and, and and expansion has been sort of i guess just assumed over the many decades for for pro sports and you know it can go the other way too right and i we mm-hmm. we certainly experience a lot of that in the in the conversations with this thing especially challenger leagues and stuff but you know i don't know i you wonder how invincible major league baseball and all these others are in the face of maybe some of these challenges that we have maybe generationally not yet gone through yet mm-hmm I think it makes sense for baseball to constrict teams that are not doing well, that are hurting the product, they're hurting the rest of the teams, and put them in a place where they might be more successful, you know, such as maybe Tampa Bay splitting a season in Montreal, where there is definitely going to be a lot of excitement about baseball. I think that kind of, I think maybe moving franchises or constricting franchises at this point might make a little more sense than adding franchises. Because like you say, we might be at our level, and you don't want to go over that level. The cup might be full. Yeah, before it runneth over, for sure. Yeah. All right, there it is. Thank you to Fran, and uh, thank you uh, for listening and uh, perhaps considering a purchase of Fran's book, which is a great survey uh, into. It's a great uh, sort of entree if uh, you're new to sort of this little genre of, uh, of sports uh, that we like to talk about. Uh, if you're really interested in sort of getting a, a, a decent lay of the land of the uh, the march of expansion in Major League Baseball over the decades, uh, you could do uh, worse than by getting uh, the uh, book by Fran that came out in, geez, when did it come out? Well, the paperback came out in 2013. I know it came out 
a number of years earlier than that. Has a forward by Branch Rickey III, the son of uh, the great Branch Rickey, who uh, you know was obviously instrumental in a lot of things like the Continental League and, and, and various uh, doings in Major League Baseball, of course. The book is called Baseball's New Frontier, A History of Expansion, 1961 to 1998. It's available in paperback form. It's available in Kindle form. You can find a link to it uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. They'll be whisked away to, to Amazon uh, and some other places for you to uh, to consider a purchase. It is uh, published by our good friends at the University of Nebraska Press. And uh, while you're at uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com, you can uh, check out all of our old episodes if you want to download or, or stream them and or share them with your friends or whatever you want to do by all means uh, you'll find all of our old episodes there of course uh, if, you know if you're not already subscribed uh, on your favorite podcast app by all means uh, subscribe to us there uh, rate and review us wherever you can not sure apple podcasts uh, is the easiest way to do that anymore but wherever you can rate and review and give us five stars or whatever We'd love to, uh, uh, you know, benefit from such and uh, hopefully get a few other folks to to chime in and listen as well. And we recommended our show who uh, might similarly uh, enjoy the proceedings like we try to do for you each and every week. Uh, while you're on the website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, of course, we'll have uh, all kinds of things for you there, like our links to our social media feeds. Uh, at Twitter, we're at GoodSeatStill. Uh, on uh, Instagram, we're at GoodSeatsStillAvailable. You will find us also on Facebook. Uh, on the website, you'll find a link to our weekly newsletter if you want to be uh, uh, a couple of days in advance knowing what we're going to be talking about and getting an early listen. Uh, that's a great way to do that, too. And uh, gosh, I don't know what else. Uh, but of course, we want to tip uh, once again our baseball cap to our pal Jerry Payne down in uh, metropolitan Atlanta, who, uh, again, uh, for whatever reasons, continues to put up with us uh, each and every week and uh, helps produce and, and edit our show. We can't do it without him, and we thank his uh, kind self for uh, for doing it this week and uh, and every, each and every week. And we uh, hugely appreciate it. We also appreciate you, our listeners. Uh, keep those cards and letters coming. If you want to send us some email, uh, the link, of course, is there for you on the website, but you can do so directly. We're at hello at goodseatstillavailable.com. You got a suggestion, you got a comment. Uh, and yes, at some point, we'll do some Patreon stuff. Uh, we'll do some giveaways. Hopefully, we're going to do a live event. Uh, or two in the coming months. And uh, we're going to do a lot more in-person types of things too. So lots of great stuff around the corner. So keep tuned in, keep your feeds clean and, and fresh and ready to go. Cause we got plenty more content to come your way. We appreciate your listening. We uh, look forward to seeing you soon. And until next week, take care everybody. And uh, we'll leave you now uh, with uh, one of the other teams that joined uh, major league baseball in 1969 and uh, what better way to do that than to celebrate the uh, the legacy that was, and if you're a Washington Nationals fan, maybe arguably still is, the Montreal Expos with, yes, the original team organist. His name is Fernand Lapierre. And here we go with the official, I guess they call it the Expos Polka, uh, but it was also sort of, uh, I guess, uh, known as Les Expos Sont Là. Uh, regardless of what you call it, enjoy and we'll see you next week. Take care.